0: Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. This is your guide on how to move forward with your music. Welcome along to Open Door Talks. I’m your host Lex Luca, and today we welcome Grammy Award-winning producer and DJ Mark Knight. Mark has notched up over 200 million global streams and has been a cornerstone in the electronic music scene for 20 odd years. Mark's had some huge records from Man With a Red Face and All Right, and his collaborations go way beyond the electronic music scene, having lent his production and songwriting talents to the likes of Faithless, Florence and the Machine, Calvin Harris, Jennifer Lopez, Flo Ryder, Black Eyed Peas, the list goes on. And that's before we even start talking about his brand, tour Room, his record label, radio show and now educational platform, which literally all started out in the shed of his parents' house. This is another conversation full of wisdom, insights and inspiration. And if you enjoy the episode, please share it with a friend, give it a five star rating and leave us a review. Let's get into it. Here we are, Mr. Mark Knight. How are you? I'm very well, Alex. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Can we just start off by uh, you telling us who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm Mark Knight. Um, I'm a DJ, I'm a record producer and I own of Records. Right, and you have a number of accolades and you've been in the business for quite a while. Can you tell us, first of all, how did this music thing start for you?
1: I guess it all roots in my childhood, um, before DJing was even a thing, wasn't even heard of, you know. Um, In the early 80s, as a kid, I was obsessed with buying music and the passion for finding and discovering new music. So I guess it all kind of was born out of that, really, just... um, yeah, just a passion for discovering soul and hip hop music. I would go football training on Saturday morning then catch the bus uh, up to town um, on a Saturday afternoon and spend Saturday afternoon just going around record shops at the age of 11, 12. Yeah, so I guess, you know, before the notion of DJing and that whole culture had kind of been created, I was already obsessed with buying music. So I guess it was all rooted in that. And then as things began to grow, I um, I began to get older, got into the idea of making music. I loved that, dabbling with with, with making stuff. And um, then the birth of electronic music and um, all of the, all those things kind of aligned, really. Um, and then started going out, initially just purely going out and clubbing and getting into it and going, wow, what is this new music? I was fortunate enough to uh, to be in a Ibiza in 1989. I was on a lad's holiday, first ever lad's holiday. I was just 16 at the time. I went to amnesia and um, it was just like, oh my God, what is this? This is bonkers. So kind of, you know, was in the right place at the right time. Um, I guess it didn't really seed initially. I was still very much into soul and swing beat at the time, around that time, late 80s, early 90s, and then, started going out and my kind of first touch point was with more soulful house music and then you know it, it seemed like a, a genuine transition between what I was listening to um, previously in soul and disco and swing beat and soulful house music I, I kind of got the connection and then it began there really in terms of being into electronic music I started making um, house music Um, And obviously DJing it on a very small scale, you know, as you do initially very much in your bedroom. My first ever gig was on a Tuesday night in a pub, which was probably the best sort of baptism of fire you could ever have, you know, playing to to five people. Because you realise if you play one wrong record, they're all going to just leave. So it started very organically. The whole thing, you know, is is a very organic process and born out of the love of of music, really. Nothing more, nothing less.
0: What would you say you were like growing up? I mean, yeah, certainly you sound like you were obsessed and passionate about music.
1: That's a good question. I was, yeah, I was obsessed with two things really football and music, and that was it. And nothing else, nothing else got a look in. Um, those two things were just, yeah, my whole life. So everything kind of, and, and basketball was really into that as well. Anything sport, I, I was pretty disciplined in terms of, you know, one, as I say, wanting to have a career as a professional footballer and played at a pretty high standard um back in the day i was assigned to maidstone um but then kind of realized that um as you got into early 20s and i was starting to get 200 quid a week for djing and then getting 50 quid for playing football and you know what maybe it makes more sense to kind of pick up the musical bat and, and and drop the football and um yeah, in some ways, I wish I would have kind of been stuck with it. But, you know, you go with your gut and think that this is, this is definitely going to be a thing. I'm never going to make what was then Division One. Um, so, yeah, maybe this is the way to go. And then, you know, girls and so on and so forth. And uh, here we are today.
0: Well, it sounds like you made a good decision.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I never, I'll never know. But I, lo- I, I love what I do. I mean, I, crikey, I really do. I'm absolutely obsessed and in love with, uh, with music and what I do. So, yeah, definitely was, wasn't a bad shout. Good plan B anyway.
0: Yeah, you mentioned, obviously, yeah, the first gig in that pub in, uh, was that in Maidstone, was it? That
1: was in Maidstone, yeah, yeah, yeah. A place called, um, oh, crikey, what was it called? Uh, Gabriel's, it was called.
0: OK, so you got your first gig at Gabriel's in Maidstone. How did you approach that gig? And then how, you know, what did you do to get better at DJing from there?
1: What I realised, gosh, I must have let about three or four records run out, if not more, because I realised the importance of, if I, and I'll never forget to this day, the importance of preparation. In anything you do in life, you know. Um, weirdly, my granddad was a paint—he was painting, and decorating. And he said to me, "Mark," he said, "Life is eighty percent about preparation and twenty percent about execution." And I think that one gig sort of really brought home the importance of what he was telling me. He always used to battle, rattle on about that um being a decorator was all about preparing the walls getting everything right and really you come in and and everything's easy to do that that rang true and everything and that was the one thing I took away from that gig that the importance of understanding and knowing all my records and knowing how they flow together and you know what records change the mood of the situation and understanding those link records that were necessary to do that that really hit home after that one gig and the other thing was just how loud it was how loud you know when you're at home playing in your bedroom and you're monitoring you know you can just play whatever's comfortable you just set it a nice comfort and then but when you go in a club situation it's like shit. it's determined by how loud it needs to be and that really was a bit of a game was like oh my god this is insanely loud i can't hear i can't hear myself think you know they were the two things i kind of took from those situations
0: how did your dj career move forward was it straight into producing music or were you djing for a while first?
1: I did very much DJing for a while first. I was dabbling making music, I was, but getting more traction, uh, DJing, you know, you just play at local parties, you start to put a few things on yourself, but I guess my first kind of big breaks came through playing at Garage City, which was uh, Bobby and Steve's night uh, in London. Um, I've become pretty close to them. I mean, first of all, I was a punter for many, 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 many years and got to know the guys and you know, they were doing some little warm-up things. They used to do like a kind of pre-thing first before they opened the whole club in Bar But They used to open one end of it, um, which is more like the bar, and they used to let me play down there. And they won the, They had a, like a DJ competition, uh, and I entered that, and I won it to play an opening set in the club. And then we kind of you know had that connection. They gave me more and more of those slots. They're more, you know, kind of headline slots. And the club was run, Gary it was run in conjunction with KISS, KISS FM. I got close to the guys at Kiss and they were like, look, we want to start a new night on Friday night at Hanover Grand in London called Independence and we want you to be the resident. It was brilliant. Each Every week I'd play with Eric Murillo or Full Intention or Joey Negro or some so you know, all of those guys who were at absolute top of their game. I built some great relationships with those guys and I become very close with Dave Lee, um, Joey Negro, and um, he was like... Look, I've played me some stuff and I've sent him some stuff. Like, yeah, it's good. You you know, you're on the right lines. You've got some good ideas, but they need refining. He said, "Look, why don't you spend a day with my engineer? You know, to sort of tidy some of them up." And I went in with Kevin, um, his engineer. We just we just hit off like a house on fire. We just become really good friends. And we're like, "Well, why don't we just start like a little production thing together? You know, using my ideas and your." you know, your better understanding of engineer. I mean, he was incredible engineer. I mean, he was Dave's engineer for years. He worked on all the big records, the Jakarta's and all of those things. He, he did all of those. And he was a phenomenal mixdown engineer, just absolutely, I mean, learnt so much from Kevin. Um, and we started this K&M thing. And the first thing we did together, Dave signed uh, to Zeb Records. So I'd kind of, you know, really got off on the right foot, releasing music on the right labels. And it sort of naturally kind of grew from that point.
0: What do you think it was about you back then that made that happen? You know, you kind of make your own luck in a way.
1: I think you just answered the question yourself. You know, if you want to make things happen, you have to do it. You have to find that energy and have that kind of foresight of where you want to go uh, and just make it happen. There's no such thing as luck. You create your own opportunities through endeavor and energy just being in the right places at the right time you know and people are only people you know they, they really are um if, if if you want something from someone, and you and you put your ideas across it in the right way then people are, are only just people and most of the time they'll they'll give you a hand or they'll give you an honest answer
0: and if you're good enough then you're good enough you mentioned a few names there who were the other guys that you you know the producers and the djs that you looked up to at that time and, and what was it about them that inspired you?
1: Well, it was actually Louis Vega and uh, Todd Terry and Tony Humphreys and Full Intention. Dave Lee, um, all of those guys, you know, um, very much the US sound and, and, and the soulful sound, but then some really cool stuff coming to the UK, Grant Nelson and, and Swing City and all the 24-hour experience, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I, th- I think the kind of early, you know, ninety, say 93 to 96 was the, for me the sort of golden era of house music. It just, you know, fortunate enough, again, to live through that. I mean, that I think that was, that was our... Um, Paradise Garage era in in the in London specifically um, and yeah I just love that sound as I say it, it connected with me coming from a, a soul background that music talked to me you know it, it, it did and um, that's what I wanted to do and I think I've always tried to maintain that through everything I, I do you know have that soulful undertone on it and, and everything you know you can be making a record that's fairly hard but it's got the funk it's got something in there that feels connected to soul you know um, I try to maintain that as a, as a narrative in everything I do.
0: In the first kind of five to ten years of you releasing music, what were the kind of key tracks and collaborations that, you know, you really saw a noticeable shift in your career?
1: I think the partnership, for, first of all, with Martin 10 Beeldam really kind of put, put me on the map. Um, we were both playing at this little club um, in Easlington um, on Upper Street. Um, and we had lots of mutual friends. Um, he was work- I was working with Kevin, and he was working with a guy called David James. Anyway, we played together a few times, and we just hit it off, the two of us. And we were of the same age. We come from an identical musical background, like the absolute cookie cutter of each other's sort of musical inspirations and background and we just said look we must get in the studio and do something and we did and we're like my god this is just so easy because we've both seen him from exactly the same sheet you know, all the references you know you i would give he would know inside out and vice versa and that production partnership was what really put me on the map um and we made a couple of records um and they did well then all of a sudden everyone wanted to read wanted a remix for us. Um, MK and MTV remixes. I guess the first one that really popped was our remix of Strings of Life. We did for Defected back in 2003, uh, which was like the biggest record of Ibiza that summer. It was just massive. And um, yeah, then absolutely everyone wanted a remix. I think we did in one year, 24 remixes. And it was great because we were so skint. I mean, we were like insanely skin. We um, We lived in my mum and dad's house and the studio was outside my mum and dad's house in the tour room. Hence, you know, when well, we we'll get to that as well, that's why it's called tour room. We built a little studio in there and we were so broke. I mean, we used to go to the Chinese late every night when it was just about to shut and see what we could get cheap. Cause that was the only way. We, I think we had duck every day for about four weeks at one point. Um, but it just helped us to survive and helped me to create, you know, to, to get some capital to then invest into what, we, what was going to be tour room, But yeah, that era, and I still say to this day, you know, that that was the best time I ever had making music because there were no pressures. We'd just go and go, let's do this today. All right, let's do it. Fine. Because we didn't have to worry about would it sell, who would support it because no one knew us. we just go, let's just make this record. And everything connected. It's like, fuck, you know, we could put no, we couldn't put a foot wrong. And in some ways that was the kind of our undoing because, we gave so much energy and so many ideas to other people's projects. When we finally come to do our own after about two years of remixing, we had nothing left. We are like, we're done. You know, we've done, there's nothing left in the tank. We've exhausted all the creativity and other people's work. Uh, and it's a real shame that we kind of ended up splitting up really then. I mean, on every level that relationship was perfect we used to DJ together on four decks and it was so good I mean because we wouldn't plan it at all we would just rock up and it was almost like a bit of a battle really he'd place some, like, oh, something, oh I've got something I've got something that's going to work with that and he'd be throwing acapellas over top and I would and it was just this constant barrage of energy and we used to play super long sets and just everything about that period in time was perfect and it was the the perfect kind of catalyst to the to the next level up going from kind of like division two into the champ or you know uh, Division one into the championship and then you know things started to really get traction i guess the next thing was was the start of the label because having worked with a lot of these labels um realized how badly they were doing things you know and i thought especially when it comes to your own productions when you do something you release it somewhere else you know when you're doing a remix you're doing a remix it's you know it's out of your hands but releasing records and other people's labels, I was doing things and it was just like, man, these people just can't run, they couldn't run a bath let alone a record label. I thought, I, I just need to take ownership of the process because I'm putting all this time and energy into this music and then giving it over to someone at the end and you go, and you go oh, wow, you've really gnawed that up. I spent you know, months crafting that and you just ruined it. So the idea of, of, of starting Tool Room was born
0: Let's talk about you as, uh, you know, Mark Knight, the music producer. One thing that has impressed me is you've never been shy about talking about the fact you work with an engineer. How do you see the role of the producer versus an engineer?
1: Well, they're two completely different things. You know, it's like comparing apples with pears. They're completely different. The role of a producer is to have the idea, the vision of what you want to, what you want to create as a piece of music. And then pooling all the right talent to bring that to life. Yeah. Now... An engineer is the person who sits behind the computer under your, under your instruction, doing the kind of mechanical um, aspect of putting, putting that record together. They're two completely different facets and it doesn't make you a better producer if you can engineer or a better engineer if you can produce, because they're two different things. It's like comparing a bricklayer with a carpenter. You just say, God, just because you can lay bricks let me say you can be a carpenter. That's a bit of a shame, that. Well, they're two completely different trades. They're two different things. So, um, look, I, you know, I can, of course I can make that engineer. I can do stuff. But am I the best engineer? Probably not, you know? Why would I not work with the best person? If I'm the best producer, why would I not work with the best engineer? Why, why would that be a slight? Why would that be wrong? That's just being sensible, you know? Again, you wouldn't say, oh, look, I'm okay at doing carpentries, but I'll have, a go, I'll have a go at making this staircase. It might be a bit crap, but at least I'm a, you wouldn't. you go, look, I'm a great bricklayer. I'm going to get a brilliant carpenter in. I'll make a brilliant... So then you've got the best of all worlds. So you really shouldn't... People shouldn't feel like they're underselling themselves or they're not the finished article. If you want to be an engineer, fine. That's, you know, absolutely fantastic. That's one thing. And I like, I like a bit of it, but I like to produce records. I like... In its original art form, I mean, you wouldn't get Quincy Jones rocking up in the studio, and go, Right, let me just boot up the computer, lads. Here, I'll do that. Let me engineer it. And where's the keyboard? Let me, you go, No, 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 right. Okay, what we're going to make this is what we're going to make today. I need the best bass player, I need the best keyboard player. You're the best engineer, I need the best top line, right. He would pull all of those things together and go, I need you to give me this. I need you to give me that. No, that's not right. No, that's not right. Yes, that's right. Right. let put that down. You know, it, someone's got to drive that along. We should really, for the benefit and longevity of our, of our scene, start to adopt that principle so that we make better music. I mean, with the greatest, because some of them, I would say 80% of the music out there right now is utter dog shit it's a tripe it, you know it, it technically none of it makes sense none of it's in tune it's horrific you know as as in terms of its kind of its technical um, aspect of it where are all the, the the anthems why do we keep going back and rehashing old stuff why are we not putting enough markers down now that was personify this this era of music. That's because we're not adopting that model. We're like, well, I have to just be able to do everything. And you know? if I can't like it's a bit like asking me to play the bass. I I can't do it. Like it would sound awful. So if you can't come up with melodies, that's okay. That, that, that's no big deal. Right? Go and find someone under your uh instruction to deliver the things you want. If you've got to hum it or sing it whatever you've got to do or give references, do that. But then we'll start to up the the quality threshold of what's going on right now you know we're all a bit lost in this kind of misnomer that unless you do all of it you're you're a snide that's utter crap you know you're comparing apples with pears come out of that mindset realize what you're good at if you're better at engineering then work with a producer as a partnership go okay you bring the ideas i'll bring them to life you know or if you're brilliant at ideas Go in with someone who can realise those ideas quickly. Now, I work with a, game, a guy called James Herb. Now, we've been working together, I'm going to say, for the last 10 years. We are so in tune now. It's telepathic. He knows the way I think. So it's just very easy. I'll get an idea going to about 40% on the plane or whether I'm in bed or whether I'll bring an idea and go, look, this is the idea. This is what I'll do. If we need a keyboard player coming, I'll get the session ready. We'll go in. And in four hours, we're done. It's done. It's down. I don't usually work later than four o'clock with James. We start about 11 because we're so in tune. We've got the team right. It does not need to be difficult. I mean, look, not every single day, but I would say 80% of the way we work is like that. I've got the structure, the idea, the vision of what we want to achieve. I get all that prepped up and I go in and then he's, he's so insanely fast. There's no way I can work that fast. He can concentrate on that. I can concentrate on, on producing the record every once in a while.
0: Yeah, so what's your methods of coming up with ideas?
1: A lot of it orientates around my DJ sets and knowing what I want records to position in my sets. So I'll make a record based on, on performance, you know, a lot of time. A lot, I need one, another one of those records, I need an anthem, I need a nice filler, I need a transition record. And then I'll make a record to suit, you know, because I like my sets to be 60 to 70% of my own stuff um, or stuff on the label, you know. Um, so I want it to be fully re- reflective of what I'm about as an artist. If your performance is almost mini concert-esque of your own material, that, that creates the full circle in terms of uh, artistry. So I think in that way, I, I'm, and also I just get inspired. I I spend a lot of time listening to the radio, loads and loads of time, You know, or whether I'm out in a shop or in a, in a lift or a hotel, I'm shazamming stuff all the time. I spend a lot of time looking backwards, um to go forward. So most of my ideas are kind of rooted on my and my knowledge of the past. You know, I, I take inspiration. As I say, look, I couldn't sit there and go, right, I'm gonna come up with this wicked chord progression that's gonna be the basis of this song. What I can do is go these chords from this record will work really well with these strings. So if we adapt these chords, we adapt these strings, you know, I know they work and I'll bring them together in my projects. And I learned that from Dave Lee, you know, when we went Working the studio together, like going back to that period, basically, when I was working with Kevin, I was ended up sharing the studio with Dave and Shorty. So he would do two weeks in there, I would do two weeks. Um, and before he moved his studio back to Mill Hill and his house, and I would sit in a session and say, Dave, would it be okay if I just sat in on a session? So, yeah, of course. And he would have this kind of. Encyclopedic knowledge of disco uh, and, and 80s. you know I, I, Not, I mean, I, I would be a liar to confess to, uh, to have the knowledge he has, but um, of a similar ilk. He would go, we'd be in a session and have Michaela, who is this incredible keyboard player, and he'd go, hang on there, Michaela. And he'd go and pull out a record and he'd go, look, play me a, a lead line like this, or play me these chords, and he'd pull out another record and he would know what worked with what and oh shit, this is going to work for me because that's how i know you know i've been collecting records since i was 10. you know I, i know music inside out i can't play these chords but i know which chords i like i know you know what i love that bass sound from this record i love those strings you know and he that's his approach to music and i learned a lot from that um of taking inspiration from things you know putting it in the pot and then coming up with something new you know that's my way of working that's just, so i'm not this kind of musician who's gonna you know eric prince is gonna come and sit and write an incredible melody and that'd be the basis of the song unfortunately i don't have those skills i wish i could but i don't so i work with the tools that i've got and the tools that i have got is this this great knowledge of, of music so i spend a lot of time listening to the music I've always loved you know, from the 80s and 90s and 70s um, going back to take inspiration you know because that's my angle that's you know I'm fortunate to be of an age to understand and know those rules that music and how it could then translate into now so that's my angle.
0: Do you think it's taken you you know, up to now to to realize that about who you are or is that something that you've known right from the beginning?
1: No I've always known that from the beginning and I think that's why I've got had a career you know that's the has as long as it ha- ha- has been. You know, I think the biggest mistake that people make is not being comfortable with who you are and understand who you are, you know. I think people are always trying to chase, you know, instead of going, look, this is me, through thick or thin. I know what I am. I'm comfortable here. I'm making records from my heart. You know, I'm not making records to be in a gang or to be in a crew. Or to, I'm making records because I love them. And if they're good enough, people will buy them. And if they don't, they don't, you know. But I think the more you try to chase something, the more transparent you are in terms of your identity and understanding what your identity is. And I've always been comfortable with who I am. Look, I, I don't press to, uh, profess to be the most underground guy. I don't profess to be the most commercial. I sit nicely in the middle. And I'm happy with that. I'm comfortable with that. I know that, And I know it has limitations. I know that, you know, I'm never going to be playing Burgine. or I'm never going to be playing the main stage at Tomorrowland's but I'm cool with that. I'm down with that. And I'm comfortable. And I, I had a nice living off it. And I feel content with who I am as a, as, as a person, you know, making, going to work every day, making music. I love, I don't, you know, I I can't even comprehend the notion of writing a record that I didn't like. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing that for? You know, if you you want to do something you don't like, Go work at a bank, man, you know, don't, don't make music. I'm sorry to all you bankers out there. (laughs) If you're banking, is a fantastic profession. But, um, no, I, you know, and I'm comfortable with that. I'm just, I genuinely am. I go to bed at night going, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I'm never going to be the richest artist in the world because what I do is somewhat niche because it's in my own lane. And I think my own lane has a, has a kind of economic limit to that. But
0: I'm cool with that. What is one bit of advice you'd, you'd give to someone who's starting out on their production journey?
1: Know exactly who you are, what you want to stand for. Just make music from the heart. Be your own audience, you know. Listen to the music you make and be comfortable. Go. Oh, I love what I've just made. If you're making it to fit on hot creations or solid grooves or and Unity, and it's not really because they're hypey, but it's not really where you come from. Fundamentally, you're 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 on rocky, on very rocky foundation. Start again. And go. Look, I just love this. This this says me. This record says me. Whether you like it, whether you know, Jamie Jones will play it. It doesn't matter. Just do it. And eventually, if you keep doing it enough and well enough, you'll build your own audience and build your own fan base and you'll be doing something you love from the heart. And that's how it has to be.
0: One of my favourite tracks of yours is your remake of Man With the Red Face. So can you just tell me how that came about and put it into context of your career and how that really helped your your DJ career?
1: Yeah, oh, Massively. I guess that was one of the big... Um, Moments, you know, in my career so far. I mean, it was it's a mad one, really. It was just before, literally, happened the day before we were going away to um, WMC, uh, myself and Funk Agenda. We were just, oh, we we need to do something for conference, and um, obviously, we've both been a fan of the original, but it just it was so avant garde. It didn't really, it, you know, in terms of its product arrangement, it it didn't really. Talk to a, a, a big club audience. All the melodies and all the things were were right, but just not told in the right way. So we just banged out this idea, and actually, I actually finished it on the plane on the way to the WMC, and I was playing at the Beatport party um, the next day, and I played it there, and it just it popped off, and the rest was history. And I I, I spoke to Lauren, and I said, look, are you? like, are you cool with doing this? He's like, yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm playing it to death myself, you know? And as soon as he, he was cool with it, we we, we released it. But um, yeah, I guess, you know, one thing I've never, I've never actually met him, you know, we've spoken by by email a few times, and our career, our, our past have never crossed, but, you know, I would love to meet him. But um, yeah, it was just a case, again, it's, it's a production thing, isn't it? It's about understanding all the best parts of something and then just going, well, look, these are all great, but if we put them together this way, they Would make even more sense, and 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 it kind of uh, yeah, obviously, we changed a bit quite a bit of it, but um, in essence, you know, it, it, it come from that idea, but um, yeah, it, it sort of blew up, and you know, I, I still play it today.
0: Yeah, it must be one of your most requested records. How, did you actually have the parts to it, or how did you go about it?
1: No, 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 no. Just, 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 re, just replayed everything. Just no, there was no parts. Again, it was just an idea. So we just, you know just did it. You know, just played the parts, had and played the parts, and um yeah, just structured it into an arrangement that would, would would you know be more club friendly and I guess you know a bit less avant garde. And uh, yeah, just, you know, again, that's you know because it's great melody. It's brilliant parts and that's what you know we need to be doing more of is 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 writing those melodies that are timeless you know not not just going on to splice because it's easy it's like let's just get someone in who can give you know a brilliant musician that can give you something that will will last forever that's again what we need to be putting more emphasis on you know because you you do that you get a collection of great melodies put together in the right way the record will last forever
0: Yeah, 100%. Uh, You certainly uh, achieved your aim in that because, uh, yeah, 100% took it from avant-garde straight into the club. Um, And, yeah, amazing tune. Tell us about some of the songwriting projects you've been in because this is something that maybe surprised me, you know, a bit and might surprise other people because you're obviously known as one of the the main guys in the house music world. So tell us about some of the songwriting projects you've been involved with. Wow, yeah,
1: I've I've done all sorts of stuff um, from writing for Calvin Harris to... Jennifer lopez to uh flow rider to i want a grammy for the black eyed peas album um all sorts um i'd really got a grasp of of, of doing what i what i do and i so far ahead of myself thought you know what i'm gonna now i've established what i am you know now i can diversify a bit i've got a solid you know solid fan base i've got a career that's that's doing well let's try some shit and um did a few pop things and, and they connected straight away. I think, the well, well, the first thing I ever did was um, rock that body for Black Eyed Peas, which was completely random. Like it was such a random way it started. I wrote this backing track with the idea of Roman Anthony, uh, who's a guy who worked with Daft Punk, who sadly passed away during the top line. And I sent it to Roman and um, he did a top line. And I wasn't sure, I guess, you know, it was kind of coming off piece a little bit, wasn't quite sure then unfortunately he passed away and i had this backing track and and one day i was in the studio i got a phone call from david He was like um mark i'm in the studio with black eyed peas have you got any any music that might work i was like do you know what i have and so i sent him this track um and about 10 minutes later will i am phoned me back it's like mark we love it can we use it i'm like yeah of course you can't do nothing on my computer I mean, so like I literally bashed out in about three hours, and I think I engineered it as well. It was pretty ropey to say the least. He said, "Yeah, we're going to put a top line on it." So, like, okay, cool. So they did it. They sent me back like, "Brilliant." I said, "Well, look, do you want me to mix it and produce it?" Like, "No, no, cool. We're just going to do it over the bounce." It's like, "What?" I said, we can't, no, 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 we can't do that. They said, no, no, we love the rawness of it. They added um, a few little bits over the top and they put his broad bass and DJs in rock. which was a bit of a nightmare because we ended up yielding loads to publish him. Anyway, so they did it and it was, it was massive. It was a global hit. I was like, oh, wow, that was, genuinely was a bit of luck. But, you know, you had to make the backing track in the first place. And then you become the go-to guy and everyone's like, look, can you make us one of them? I was like, all right, I'll have a go. And in the end, I found myself in these writing camps in LA they're writing records for Flowrider Rider and Jennifer Lopez. And I did stuff for it. Oh, I, I, loads of people. And it was good fun. It was really good fun. I enjoyed it. It showed me another side to the industry and, and how sort of calculated it was and how much of a kind of conveyor belt type machine the whole process is and how little love, you know, was, you know, you personally had attached to this music. Like, for example, we'd be in studios in LA and you'd have this whole, have about four or five different studios and they'd come and say, right, Got this piece of music. Can you add a bit to it? Okay, yeah, cool. We'll uh, we'll do something. Did something. Right, thanks. And they're taking it to the next studio. Uh, And someone had another bit. That's why you see these label credits for pop records. They've got about 20 songwriters on it. And, you know, we got involved in quite a bit of that. And it's weird. You know, you'd sit there and labor over a. A, a tech house record and you just written this record for flow Radio. yeah that do. spent 20 minutes on it and it was a massive global hit so it, it was kind of weird uh, but it was it was interesting i've done less of it lately but it's it's something that you know the door's never shut um and it's it's just a nice side to, to what you could do and it's um it, it's an interesting um just an interesting way to test yourself as a producer you know to come out of your comfort zone and I like being in those instances, you know, I, uh, I remember I worked on Underworld's album Barking. Um, that was a brilliant thing that myself and Dean Merritt, Dean Ramirez. We we would obviously written some, uh, a record with downpipe with Underworld, uh, and they were writing a new album and they were like, look, would you come in and produce it? I was like, hey, that's Rick asked my name, me and Dean to produce this album. Really? All right, we'll give it a go. So yeah, we spent a good few months with the boys, um, and we wrote five tracks on the album. Uh, and again, that was another great process, and, you know, and all these building blocks you have to your career on, uh, on becoming a, a better producer. And I love that. I love it. I love testing myself, you know, um, in different instances and seeing if you can grow and, and improve. And, and that really stretches you, you know, to come out of your comfort zone to be, you know, writing a record for Calvin Harris. Um, and then the next day doing, you know, an underworld record. It's It's kind of cool.
0: So working with all these pop stars, what's the main things that you've learned from that experience?
1: Just to uh, be able to understand how to make things with more commercial appeal, you know, um, but retain integrity. I think that, that's the trick. You know, if you can write a pop record that has edge and is rooted in something with integrity, but is then has a commercial sensibility, um, I think that's an interesting notion and it's 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 a testing one you know how to to maintain your level of credibility but apply that into pop and i think you know because you could rock up and do the most hideous kind of lead and it would probably be really work really well but how how do you kind of maintain the two principles and exist so you feel comfortable with it but it's gone on to to appeal to 11 year olds you know but yeah it's rooted in something kind of cool
0: let's move on to djing you know, you've had a, a long and varied successful career in, in DJing. And full disclosure, I produced your Essential Mix. I think it was 2011 at Space and Ibiza. Yep. That was a real high moment. Well, certainly in my, in my radio career, but also I think, you know, that was a real heyday for you as well. So how would you describe the role of a DJ? And, and certainly how has that changed over the years? Well, I, look, I still
1: don't, to this day, can't quite get my head around the fact that everyone's looking at me like, why? You know, when I mean, when I used to go out as a kid, when I used to go out, um, <laughs> no, people did, people did look at the DJ. They were like, I don't need a cue from the DJ to uh, to tell me to have fun. You know, I I'm just here, I'm genuinely there for wit for girls. You know, I mean, it's like, listen to brilliant music, meet girls. That was the kind of what nightclubs were about. They were about that and having fun and getting you immersed in that experience. It wasn't looking at someone in this kind of idolised perspective to give them a cue for entertainment. So I still find that a bit weird, I'm totally honest. Um, It is what it is, but I would rather, I I, I wouldn't care if I was in the corner of the room, but people were getting down and they were facing each other, enjoying the music, you know? That's what I think the scenario should be. And when you look at the great clubs throughout history, that was the vibe. That was definitely the vibe, you know? I, I guess... As I touched on earlier, I was lucky enough to live through the sort of mid 90s coming in London and, and Ministry of Sound, ruling on Saturday night Ministry of Sound it was just unbelievable. It was our Studio 54, it was our Paradise Garage. It was when, you know, pre mobile phones, pre internet people would go every single week and there'd be a community of people. you would all know each other. But you, some weeks you couldn't get in, you know, even if they went every week and this guy marked on the door, you would rock up and say, now, nah, not tonight. And what? i come every week, Mark. You know, we really know. But that, belt that built this kind of uh, aura of like wanting to be in there even more, you know, and when you're there, just totally letting go. So I think the role of a DJ has, has changed a lot from being just a great selector of music to an entertainer and a kind of pie piper of the dance you know people look at you for a cue and, and i think you have to in this day and age understand both facets of that is is to understand how to put together a brilliant story of music through uh, a, a detailed understanding of the records that you're playing but mirrored with a personality that has that is fun that is you can connect with because people are looking at you to go, well, I don't know this song, but Mark, if you're having fun, I I trust you, I'll go with it. You know what I mean? So you have to emanate that energy and resonate that for people to kind of connect. So the role of a DJ has changed a lot. And I I guess I'm I'm kind of fortunate enough to have a personality that that people want to sort of connect with. And, you know, I I know how to put a record on. So, yeah, I'm still here, still plugging away at it.
0: How do you prepare for your DJ sets and how do you, keep it fresh for yourself and make sure you're so enjoying it yeah that's a tough one
1: because the reality is i don't get that much time or as much time as i'd like to to spend time really working i get so much music all the time i mean not and, and, and only one percent of that will work in my sets but it, it, you're right that's a it's a very good point and, and like my wife says that you know do you ever get bored of playing the same records and you're like yeah i do I do i genuinely do but people want to hear them you know they're not following me around the world they might see me once every three years and they want to hear those records because you've made them so it's a balancing act of playing the records that people paid their money good money to come along and they want to hear because i've made them but then balancing that with enough new new music so it is a juggling act that and um I genuinely wish I had more time to spend hours and hours, or days and days, just going over music, crafting these kind sort of these sets. You know, these ideas of new music and stuff. Because it's very hard to just drop something in. I'm just going to drop that in. That's you know, my sets are so I'm so fastidious about the energy flow of my sets, and that doesn't changes or well. has a very smooth progression up and down throughout my set. So it's not particularly easy to just throw something in. So I have to really think about when I'm going to play it, how, you know, the changing energy will, you know, if you want to do it as a conscious move. So, yeah, it's a tough one to, to to kind of constantly update week in, week out. I just don't, that doesn't work for me because, as I say, 60 or 70% of what I pay is my own stuff. And people want to hear that. But you might be playing the same record for two years because, it's been a big record, and people just want to hear it and and why shouldn't they? you know there's nothing worse when you go and see something, oh, they never played it, man, I want to hear that record, so you're you're you, you kind of have to carry that around with you a little bit, but i you know I try to, as much as possible to you know throw in loads as, as much as I can of new stuff you know to keep me inspired as well because there's nothing more fun than playing a, a brand new record that goes off You're like shit, this is brilliant i'm I'm all over this record. You know, I just got sent this demo today and I cannot wait to play it this weekend. You know, and I still have that buzz for it, you know, so that inspires me. But it's a, it is a balancing act.
0: How do you go through your music, you know, your promos and then how do you actually organise your music?
1: Well, unfortunately, because I obviously I do a lot of radio. Um, I mean, some weeks I am doing three, three different shows a week. Um, Danny, who I work with, is... Um, goes through all the promos and just puts them in weak folders and then i'll just go through them all because uh, i literally uh, you know I, I just don't have the time you know when you're uh, and that's that's not i don't care but the reality is you know it's about appropriating my time in the most efficient way possible um and i'll get all the he knows what i like he knows what i won't like and then i'll just go through and then i'll spend at least two or three hours a week on beatport and on track source i do that for both you know wanting to buy new music and you know, I never lose that passion ever and, and just research you know from, from the label trends and what's what's happening who's hot I know I'll make sure one thing I do do every week is that um, I kind of build our sets um, well, build them I put folders for different hours you know I love playing for long periods of time you know that for me is, is what DJing should be about in my eyes you should just have one DJ one DJ one night that, that's how it works that's what I grew up with and I think how better way to create that musical experience than one person doing it. And it's all cohesive and it's all, all in sync because you're, you know, you're, you have ownership of the whole flow of the night. So I, I tend to put things in folders like hour one, hour four, hour six, you know, hour, hour two, something like that. So I'd have all these different things and then I, I kind of go from one folder to another and then I just update that hour by thro- throwing something in there. You know what I mean? I that'll know will know work within that. That level of energy. So, you know, our one's going to be drastically different to our three because that, you know if you're starting at ten o'clock, um, you know you want that energy and tempo to be something different. You want to be at one twenty at ten o'clock, and that say midnight, you want to be at one two four or one two five, which is a bit fast for me, but um, <laughs> but something of that. So I'll put things in in different folders for different levels of energy, different periods throughout the night is the way I plan it.
0: Mark, let's jump onto your label. Yeah. It's become one of the, well, most well-known and well-respected house music labels on the scene, without a doubt, and it is still fully independent, Yeah, as I understand it. Absolutely. So you've had this amazing success. You're celebrating 20 years this year. We are, yeah, yeah. Take us back to 20 years ago, how it all started, and, yeah, what was the kind of opening early days of it? How was it?
1: Well, we touched on it earlier what what drove me to do it was just this this disappointment really with the way my music had been handled by other people and i was like i could do this better myself you know and if i get it wrong it's only me to blame so i at the time um my brother was a car salesman and he just lost his job so he was out of work my dad had retired and now my dad was um he was in a band many years ago as a drummer Back in the day, and he did that and he toured for a while. So he understood the music industry and then he went on to be a booker for a nightclub, booking bands and stuff in the 60s. And then he got into business and marketing, whatever, and you know, he left the music industry long behind him. But he obviously, had an appreciation and an understanding of the industry, and as a musician, you know, he knew it and he's mad, passionate about music. But he retired, he was bored. I said, Look, I look, I want to start a record label. Let's do it. You know, you're not doing anything, so you're out of work dad you're bored i've got this vision let's do this thing and um the tool room was just a shed outside my parents house and we'd we have the decks in there we cleared all the lawnmower and the, all the tools and stuff out of there and put our decks in there we said have all, our decks and stuff we used to go in there me and my brother and practice i said look let's call it tool room records you know what i mean it's to set up a studio in, the, in there um the office was inside in the kitchen in my mum dad's house um and i just had this vision of what i wanted to do as a, as a, you know as a label and as a of a sound because that's you know the biggest accolade you can have in a and r or running a label is is to have your own sound you know through consistency um is we have our own sound you know In the same way as uh you have put the radio on so you hear a record oh that sounds very motown now you don't know what, why that sounds Motel, but through association, you know, you put the two things together, oh, that sounds like it should be on that record label into the lay person. They're so good at it that they've established this kind of understanding of what they stand for musically. And we have the same with all. room. People write stuff, that so I've written, so I think it sounds very tour room. And that's through years and years of consistency of a, of a certain sound. We've never chased a trend. Look, we've been guilty of maybe broadening the parameters of what we've done too far but it's usually always our downfall. And we go back to what we're good at, and everything comes back on song again. So, but we—I well, had a vision of what um, I wanted to do, and at the time, yeah, David was like strictly and subliminal, and was I really looked up to him? I said, look, I want to do something like this. Um, I want to own the process, so I'm in control of the whole thing. And you know, if, it, if it's wrong, then it's only we've only screwed it up. Basically, I had a house and I sold it. um, and I put everything I had back into creating a studio in, in the shed um and I was starting to pick up some more DJ gigs. And every penny I had went back in the pot and we'd pay our salary um you know we would take about three four hundred pounds a month each we were brassic that's what it was we stuck to it we stuck to it and you know for years I think we didn't make any money for about 13 years you know we stuck to the plan that um of what we wanted going to be, and we've got the sound exactly right. We've got the economics of the business right, the amount of people required. But I always understood from day one that. I could be good individually. I could be very, very good, but I could be unstoppable if I had a team. And it was about getting the right team around me and getting the right people around me to support my vision and my dream and kind of inspiring and empowering them to to, to realize what, you know, I had in my head and, you know, there's no better team to have than, than your family. I mean, back in the day, my mum used to run off the royalty statements and, you know, everyone had a hand in it. We were all knee deep in this record label. And, and, you know, 20 years later, it pays me a very nice salary. Now I don't need to go and DJ. Now it's gone the other way around. It's gone from having to DJ to support the record label and not taking any money to the other way around, not having to DJ now because the record label supports my, my lifestyle. So, been a twenty-year journey, and, and we've stayed true to what we believe and we, what we love in, and, and the sound we, yeah, the sound that, that comes from our heart, and and I think that's created longevity.
0: What would you say has been the formula to the success of Toolroom?
1: Quality. We have a fairly broad spectrum of our sound. You know, um we can do something that's sort of daytime-friendly, then we could do a sort of techno record. Now, what ties all of those things together? for people to say, it sounds very touring. And that's the quality threshold. I am obsessed with everything we do that we put out being as good as it can be. I mean, most of the time I get the stems off people, I'm tweaking records, I'm remixing them down. So our ANR process is heinously involved. But once we put it out there, we can't ask to put it, bring it back. Oh, crikey, that's not quite right. Can we, that's 16 bars too long. Can we just take that down or the strings are too loud in that record? you know there's there's so much of that goes into the product before it's finally released which affords us the opportunity to then launch the academy because we are known for quality that's what people want they want to come and learn how to make music from us because we've got 20 years of uh, of quality behind us but that's what ties it all together is that's what links all of that together is the quality threshold and i'm fastidious and I'm obsessed with that uh, nothing gets out without you know usually me getting under the bonnet of it and having a little tinker not always but I would say 60% of the time um, that's what the principle here is Matt who's now head of A&R or Pete before that I've really taught them that that's the way I want things done you know and that's how we do it and that's become you know what makes the sound of the room.
0: what do you think makes a good A&R then it's just a good
1: an understanding, and I guess I'm fortunate enough to have that because I see the kind of in situ side of the product is playing the records out, knowing how they'll translate. It's that understanding of translation between a demo and how that will work in a nightclub, because ostensibly it has to root there and start there. You know, and that's how all of our biggest records have ever worked. That they've grown organically through that process. If you try to skip that process and go, oh, that's just that should just be doing really well at radio. It's a very short-sighted approach and generally people see through that. If you try and tell people a record's bigger than what it is, they've all, they've all got their own set of ears. They're all going to say, no, it's not. You know, you can't pretend the record's been a club anthem if it hasn't been a club anthem. So get that bit right first. And if it's good enough, it'll go on to do bigger things. But let's just stay focused on the bit that we understand, the bit that what our brand stands for. And if you know, if, if one or two pop their head up, and go on to do bigger things, great. But the more you try to look for that big record or skip the process, the less likely it is to happen.
0: What do you think the common mistakes that you see late like other labels are
1: making? Uh not owning a sound, you know, being too conscientious about being on trend and following what's going on, and therefore people don't know what they're gonna get. You know, you want to be able to go into a record shop and go. Just you know, back in the old the old day, I'd go in and you'd walk into a new record shop, see a new subliminal record, I'll have it. Do we need to hear it? No, nah, don't need to hear it because I know it'd be brilliant because I know they've got sound, they've got continuity. And I know it'd be great. And that was the the basic principle we have with a record label to have that adage that you would go into a record shop and go, I'll just have a new touring record. You know, our, our sort of strap line at the beginning was we only release get out of jail card records. So if you're on a gig and it's going a bit tits up, put a touring record on, or rescue the situation. So we sought to find those records, you know, and we've always maintained to try and do that, you know, those records that will that have some degree of anthemic feel but done in the right way you know with the right with the right level of energy and the right level of understanding for what they are so you know it's it's about understanding what your brand stands for what your record label stands for and sticking with it from thick or thin look there are are points in time where tom was not the coolest thing was not the you know the hottest thing on on the planet but we we rode it out and like music is you know it, it goes around in circles Eventually, you come back around again, and because you are you stay true to what you're about, when you when your time comes again, you're, stra- you're at the front of the queue again. And all of a sudden, you're off again, then you're in vogue for the next five years. But you've got to have the confidence in sticking to what you stand for. You know, try chasing the sound. Short-sighted, you know. Don't, people don't know what they're going to get. People like to know what it says on the tin is inside the tin, you
0: know. What are the main... Uh, mistakes you might have made over the last 20 years that have really helped you grow it i call them mistakes but they're really opportunities to learn and, and grow right
1: yeah i mean i think what happens sometimes when you get commercial when you have records that um start to tip over the edge and become more commercial they then attract more commercial records um because oh you've got massive record we well, can we send you our massive record and then you start to do too many massive records and then you cut out the core of your, your sound and your business, which is club banks, you know, within the period of COVID, obviously we gravitated more to radio-friendly records because that was the kind of only medium we had to connect with our audience was the radio, no clubs, no whatever. So, you know, we were fortunate to have the kind of bandwidth that has allowed us to do that. But we kind of languished there too long. And people were like, oh, I've written a record, but it's probably a bit too clubby for tour. And are like, oh my God, it broke my heart. I was like, shit, now we need to go back the other way to get back to the, to what we're about, just straight-up club records. And we were in a, a budget meeting and then our meeting talking about, you know, you know, projecting the figures we need to achieve throughout the year. And, um, you know, we were looking at, like, shit, you know, we've not got any radio records in there. And I was like, well, look, we never planned to have radio records in the first place. Let's just stick to what we're good at. and um, One of these will pop. And then you'll get 40 million, do 40, 50 million streams and we'll be fine. But if we try to aim for something we're not, we'll confuse our fan base. And we, we look, we have been guilty in the past of doing that. And that generally comes through success. It's about having the confidence to, to say no to things that are, you know, are going to be big records, but do they fit the sound of your brand? No, are you going to change the landscape of what you're about? Probably yes. So, there, long term, you you undermine all the things you built up on. And look, we've we've got that wrong in the past. And I'm, I'll be the first person to put my hand up and so say we've done that in the past and got it wrong. Uh, we acted. We, we did a big campaign once called Reset, which was about exactly that. We wanted to realign to to what we we're about. And I it was in 2014. Again, that we got so fucking big, it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, everyone was. It want you know we were getting Coldplay phoning us up saying, "Look, we've got this mix done. Can we put it on tour?" Room incredible, flattering, but we were then broadening the sound of what we were about too far. We're like, "No, nah, this, look, this is what I feel comfortable." You know, will I have will I have a yacht in the Bahamas? Maybe not, but I'm comfortable with what we're about. So we had to do this big campaign, not a U-turn, but kind of sort of solidify and refine. The sound of the label, and uh, and I think we're just going through a new era of that now. You know, we we as I say, we kind of push the parameters of what we're about within COVID to stay buoyant. You know, and we've got thirty people that work here. You know, it's a lot of mouths to feed, and we didn't lay a single person off. Of that period in fact, we actually had our, our best financial year ever, weirdly enough. But were we doing the music that really was a sound tour? Maybe not. So you know, we are going through the process of you know swinging the pendulum back the other way. Uh, and realigning um, what we're about as a, as a brand. So I guess they're the sort of mistakes we've made in the past. It's a tough one because we have to navigate within our space. You know, we aren't super commercial, we aren't super underground. So you always walk in this kind of tight rope of like getting that right. And we probably judged way more so than everyone else. You know, we take a half a step too far the other way. Ooh, that's too underground. Ooh, that's too commercial. You know, we really scrutinize way more than everyone else. If you're underground, you find not underground domain, go wherever you like. If you're commercial, do whatever you like, put out dancing on the ceiling by Lionel Richie. No one gives a shit. If we put one foot out of place. It's like, oh, tour room's not, tour room's not what they used to be. It's a real tough one. You know, we really, we, we do get a lot of pressure from that. Um, and it doesn't help. But, yeah, that's the thing we have to kind uh, of deal with all the time and make sure that we're in that sweet spot of the kind of musical landscape that, that overlaps nicely where, the, I guess, the, mo- the, the commercial guys, it's their most underground record, and the underground guys is their most commercial record. But when you get in that really nice overlap, it's game on. They're the records that really pop.
0: Tell us a bit about the academy. Why did you, Why did you start it, and and you know what is what's all about? Well, I guess it was you know
1: I okay, to use another football analogy. It was it was very much modelled on what football academies do. Having come through one myself and my son being one at, at one now, I sort of know that whole world inside out and and how it works. Um, you know, starting from kind of the, the, the real basic side of it, where you give people the opportunity to work through your brand, but you've got you know, to to have a touch point with your brand, but you've got to pay for it, you know, like a lot of football clubs now do coaching things where you can be at the um, development stage of clubs and you pay your, your children pay to, to be at the development of Chelsea or Tottenham or whatever. So you could sell the dream of being part of it, but it's got a cost, you know what I mean? So that's the first touch point. And then the second touch point is okay, you've you You're actually pretty good, aren't you? So we're going to upscale you and and, and teach you something um, better. Now you you get the basics. So you're decent. You're a decent player. You're a decent producer. So we're going to give you the next rung up. And where we've differentiated ourselves against um, other kind of music tuition is that it's taught by people who've had a bona fide career in the industry. You know, you're being taught by Dean Marriott or. Ben Keen, not B.K. or Dean Ramirez. People who have been absolutely at the top of their game. Dean is a genius. He is a, he's a genius. You know, it's not like you're being taught by some guy who knows a bit about dance music, or but he's really into sort of rock and he's got a rock band. But you know, it's, you know, he knows about beat together. You're being taught the nuances and the inside track from the best people in the world. That's very unique. Um, under the principle of what we stand as a sound, you know? So you're getting, this is what we stand for. This is how we do things. This is our quality threshold. These are the the principles and the same with the principles, like a football club the principles, the way they play, they are as a club, their visions. So you teach people that. And then if they're good at that, they go, okay, well, you're very good. So we're going to sign you. So it's another great way of, of, of finding new talent. We have a management company as well, so if you're really good, we'll sign you into a management company, and then you're part of the gang. You come through this process all the way, you proved yourself, and now you're releasing on the label. Now you're playing for the first team, so it, it's a win for for everyone. Look, not everyone's going to get in the first team. You know, life doesn't work that way. But be good enough, hone your skills. We'll give you all the tools. We'll give you all the tricks. We'll give you all the inside information. Be very good. And before you know it, you'll be playing in the first team, uh, and that's the principle of, of, of the academy. And we've seen some incredible results with that, like people like Wheats, Maxine, these new guys, Fletcher, Cows, come through the through the academy. All of these people we've just found from grassroots, you know, where they've come to one of our events, uh, academy events, or take one of our courses. They've come through that process, and they're going on to have you know global careers. So it works as a, as a model, and um, it's the one percent gang, you know. But if you're good enough to be in the 1%, then we're, the doors are wide open for you. It's a really interesting concept that has worked well with football for years and years. So we just, you know, having understood that from our past, it was just something that was easy to employ.
0: What is it about that 1% then now that you think helps people cut through? Because there's a lot of music, there's a lot of great music producers. What is it about the 1% that really stands out for you?
1: It's it's an intangible question, really, isn't it? What What... What makes something special? But you can hear it, you know. That I don't think that there's a there's a definition of that. It's a mixture of quality and, and ideas, you know. A lot of time with these things, they don't have to be the finished article. If you can hear, you know, a lot of times I hear things in people, like for example, like Adrian Hour or weeks or people like that. they were never the f- finished article but i spent lots of time working with them go if you change it, if you do this you do that now you go back to use this as the template use this as a template and finally it all clicks and all these brilliant progressive new ideas they've got with something that works then all of a sudden it, it 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 turns into something um so I, you know i i have i have a good ear for um for spotting potential talent it's like being a good scout of football football scout you know you can see someone's like okay they're not ronaldo straight away but with the right coaching with the right being in the right environment we could we could create a ronaldo so that's one part of my job and uh, you know sparing my own blushes i'm kind of good at doing that good good at seeing um that cruci being another guy who's you know very much that i mean less so less involved with him he's just he's superb you know but um very much understands what we're looking for in terms of the tool and quality threshold. And, you know, it brings great ideas executed in a brilliant way. So, you know, it's about, that's a big part of my job is being a talent scout, finding this new talent. Some of it's at 90%, some of it's at 60%, but you know, with the right with the right involvement and the right steer, we'll get to a hundred percent. So that's the idea of the uh, the Academy.
0: So, what is the structure, just in case people want to find out more? What's the structure of the academy? Is it a rolling thing or is it a kind of hard start? We've
1: got lots of different um, product suites. We've a big, well, big product suite. We've got um, courses you can just download, um, tutorials. Then we've got um, uh, online courses that you sign up to. And it's actually run. i have just put this is Pete's room. It's under construction at the moment. So, that's why it's a bit bare in here. Um, but, Pete, uh, uh, Ben, and ben and dean run courses online you can sign up to all over the world then we've got uh master one-to-one so you can put time to be with dean like a six or seven week block where you'll be with dean um every week and in his studio working with him or bk or or or, or ben remember Just, you know pop onto our website and it'll give you it's Tom academy up to academy.com um, and you'll see the full product suite of what we've got but there's a touch point from everyone you know from the the, the person who's never opened a, a DAW to someone who's very close to you know about to pop off in their career that just needs that last bit of fine tuning it it satisfies all of that criteria
0: one thing that really strikes me about you is not only your passion for music which I think was always clear from your DJ sets and your music production but you really do have an entrepreneurial mindset I think that's really something that you know I'm seeing in in, in having this conversation. And you really understood from a, a young age the importance of building out a team around you especially for those starting out in this music world. You know, how would you advise people do that? How do you find the best people especially when you're really early on in your career?
1: That's the challenge. I you know it's about inspiring people around you to help you realize your dream, you know? Look, when we started this business, I had absolutely no love for doing a double, double taxation form uh, to get money back from Portugal. I had not one sinew in my body had any uh, any desire to do that. But my brother was quite good at that. But in the same way, he didn't want to sit there and and, and spend hours f- refining a snare. So it's about finding the right people to do the right job, and and that's where it goes wrong when you try to. Take all of that stuff on on your own. You lose sight of the bit that you're good at. So it's about having a vision, writing that down, and going right. This is what I think I can achieve. Now, who do I need around me to help me realise that? Because if I get too caught up and do double taxation forms, I won't be writing the next club banger for us to then get the money back from Portugal from the record. So it's about getting all of those people. Um, on the pitch playing you know the right role you don't need eleven left backs you don't need eleven centre forwards you know you need a right person doing all the right things build that team however you have to do it you know and what you have to remember here is that if you invest in yourself look at it as a business you know just because you're an artist doesn't mean to say this is not a business it's called the music business for a reason it's not just called music it's called the music business. Now, if you satisfy all of those facets and have the right people doing, and that will cost money. People won't do it for free. They won't do it for, you know, you, you're going to have to do it for free. And one you do earn, you're going to have to pay them. But it's an investment into yourself. Like if you're opening a shop you know, you can't just open it, it would take investment, you'd have know, to premises, fit out, buy stock. It's an investment to create a return. So you have to see it with that um with that in that in that way as, as as a business. Invest in yourself and it will pay dividends. Scrimp and scrape on that part of it. Unfortunately, you're in the mix with everyone else who's not doing that. That will set you apart. Empower a team around you under your direction under your vision and you know emanate that energy and that vision of where where you think you can take it and you know reward people in a way in the right way and look after them, and make sure you do that and they'll stick with you and then together as a team
0: write your own script can you give us your top three tips for independent artists people starting out in their music career or at any point in their career but what advice would you give to them
1: fundamentally know who you are like we we talked about earlier understand what you stand for don't worry about what's in vogue ignore that do things from the heart because that's what will give you a career longevity if you're trying to chase something you know it's going to be a flash in the pan so know who you are and be comfortable with who you are if you do that if you establish that principle straight away you're on a, you've got a great foundation a great foundation you're going in on the right on the right foot secondly build a team around what you are you know whether it be your friends helping you out sell them the dream man you know you, you know we started this stuff as being my brother in a shed you know we've gone from the shed to the stars and so it, it can happen so get the right people around that you trust uh, to help you realize the vision of what you're you're about and approach it really nailing on both principles the creativity and the business get all of those things right and then you've got a good chance of having a, a, a proper career you know it, it would be wrong with me to say it's all business it'd be wrong with me to say it's all creativity you've got to marry the two principles equally to have a career
0: so is that number two and then you've got one more more
1: crikey uh, i i
0: think have a plan
1: have a have a have a plan you know have a vision and, and plan things out how many releases you want in year? what direction feels natural what what um what are the right people that you want to aspire to be around? You know, in terms of if if you are going to go to an external management company, who are the people that you want to have around you? Who who do your homework? If you know, if you let's say you want to be like me, yeah. Who what what are the kind of people? What, what agency am I at? What man? Well, I manage myself, but. You know, when I was with 360, you know, what management company was I at? Look at a similar example, a, a reference, you know, like you would do a reference track. Look at a reference artist, you know, pull what they've done together, how they've done it. Write it down. I think the most important thing is to have all these things, you know, don't run around with it all stuck in your head. Put it down in black and white. Bounce it off people. Get opinions. Um, uh, uh, but have a, have a definitive plan of what you want to achieve, because then you've got a point of reference. Then so you're not just going from pillar to post, what feels right today. It's like, well, does, is that part of the process? Is that part of the plan? Is this agent part of where I want to be? I, you know, that is, a, that's what I'm, I'm absolutely hell bent on planning. I'm always planning, 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 you know? So there's, you know, yes, things come up ad hoc and you you, you know you have to be reactive enough to, to adapt yourself to get um, business that comes up, at you know, uh, short term, but the long term stuff is the bit that that really makes sense, you know, to know where you want to be, model out how much you want to earn, you know, what, what, what money, do, how much money do you need? So, you know, how much money do you need to survive? You know, if it's, if it's 50 grand, if it's 250 grand, what do you need to achieve to have the lifestyle you want? And I guess if I could go back to, um, a younger version of Mark Knight, if I could go back and put one thing right that uh, I, I kind of got wrong, um, it's balance. Because to be successful, unfortunately, you do have to be a bit focused and narrow-minded. Um, and that means yielding a lot of time um, in, uh, in life. And, and I've missed out on a lot of things like mates' birthdays and social events, the things I wish I could have been part of, but I was so hell-bent. On, on taking this as far as I could do. I guess if I could go back and change one thing, it would be about making sure you are the person you were going into music as you still are. You know, if you're not mad on football, if you're mad on cricket or sport or you're mad on cars, make sure that you enjoy all of those interesting facets of life enough so that you're a rounded and whole person because it can be a very dangerous industry this and can eat you up and chew you up and spit you out you know so make sure that if things don't go to plan you're still the person you were going in as you were coming out and I think as I've got older the thing that I've really spent a lot of time is appropriating my time in a way that I'm a balanced human being. You know, if you look at my socials, it's not every photo is in the picture of me getting off a jet or a fucking plane or in a nightclub. I've tried to show that it's okay to be successful and be a normal person, a a balanced human being. So I I guess my last piece of advice would be is is to make sure you retain that identity as you
0: if someone wants to get in touch and send you some music how how was the best way of doing that through
1: label radar um we, we've just started a new relationship through them um that's the best way to get um your demos heard through us um and me personally just at dj mark Knight. i'm just one of the lads if you want to give me a shout please do you know what i mean i'm i'm not the best on social media so don't be disappointed if it takes a little while to get uh, to get back to you but i'll give you a shout back cuz you know why wouldn't i
0: amazing well mark it's really clear your passion for music, your vision, and your entrepreneurial mindset, your drive, your creativity, uh, your energy is just fantastic. It's no wonder, really, that you've been so successful. So, you know, 20 years, congratulations, and here's to another 20. Thanks,
1: mate. If you could just tell that to my wife. i
0: All right, brilliant. Thanks, Alex. Top man. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast, so make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources.